Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 233, Twitter Spaces recap. We'll do some quick introductions and merch if you have any announcements, we can go through that as well. Um, and then we'll jump into the newsletter. Um, and I will share some tweets uh, shortly so that folks can follow along if, if they're not familiar with what we're covering from the print version of the newsletter. By way of introductions, Mike Schmidt, contributor to Bitcoin Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund open source Bitcoin developers. Merch? Sorry. Uh, here, yes. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Merch. Uh, I work at Chaincode Labs. I do a lot of uh, Bitcoin y stuff for work. Jesse, maybe introduce yourself and, and give some background on getting into Bitcoin and some of the work you've done. Sure. Yeah. So um, I used to be a lawyer in a previous life uh, when I started going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole uh, a little bit ago. Uh, and I joined, uh, I used to work at Coinbase on the key management team, working on cold storage stuff um, after my conversion to engineer slash cryptographer. Um, and uh then I was actually funded by Brink for a while, um, working on uh, open source implementation of Frost and ECDSA adapter signatures. And I'm continuing to uh, work on Frost. Uh, I've got a PR open in the stack P256K1-CKP repo. Uh, but I joined Block uh, last year um, to work on the... Uh, on the uh, self-custody uh, wallet solution. Um, and uh, specifically, I've been uh, looking at uh, designing our Lightning architecture, our Lightning implementation for the wallet. Um, and that's where I've been working heavily with, with Z-Man, who, who can intro himself. But uh, we've been thinking about Lightning implementation, and uh, that's where this idea emerged um, swap in potentium to uh, handle some of the liquidity pain points that come up in Lightning. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Uh, Z-Man, do you want to introduce yourself and some of your background that you feel comfortable sharing? Hello. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Okay. Uh, so I'm Z-Man, Z-M-N-S-C-P-X-J. I'm just some random guy on the internet. In, you can argue that I am actually some wannabe indie game dev who wandered into the wrong part of Reddit and got suckered into buying Bitcoins, and now I develop Bitcoin software. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, it, it, I think your, your proposal is quite interesting, and it's great that you both were able to join to sort of um, explain this with a little bit of uh, Q&A. For, from us, from Merch and I, as well as the, the audience. So the uh, first item in the newsletter this week is your proposal. Um, so I think we can jump right into that. It may be beneficial to maybe walk through the current way that a, a user may go through the process of uh, you guys can correct the use case, but potentially uh, maybe I buy some Bitcoins on Coinbase. I want to withdraw those. Uh, I'm a good citizen. I want to I hold my keys, so I take them off the exchange. And then maybe at some point later, I want to uh, do some 
lightning related payments. So how is that done today? And then maybe weave in maybe how there could be issues in, in some of those use cases or it could be improved. And then we can get on to um, how your proposal improves upon some of those use cases. Maybe Jesse, you want to take this, this first one of how, how do we open and, and manage lightning channels now and what are, how would that use case work and what are some downsides? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in the current in the current way we we deal with lightning, um, you have to consciously and and manually make sure your lightning channel has sufficient outbound liquidity. So, let's say you have some lightning channel open and you buy some Bitcoin on Coinbase, or you get paid Bitcoin, um, or somebody sends you Bitcoin. You just you, you receive Bitcoin on chain. Um, you need to those coins are not available uh as a source of liquidity in the lightning channel um on their own you need to take an action and pay a fee and wait for on-chain confirmation to load up your lightning channel with the new coins and so where this can become kind of annoying is let's say uh Let's say I, you know, like to go to my local coffee shop and use Lightning to buy coffee every day, and uh, but I get paid on chain. Um, and one day I go to buy my cup of coffee, and I don't have sufficient liquidity in the Lightning channel, even though I just got paid yesterday because I forgot to move the on chain. Uh, coins into the channel, and this is uh, particularly a problem if my if I'm using a mobile wallet. Because if I have a uh, always online desktop or server that is handling this, I could potentially automate the process where, as soon as I receive some on-chain Bitcoin, I can have it move uh, move funds into the channel either by open it or I could open a new channel with my LSP. I could close the channel and, and open a new one to move funds in. I could splice in, uh, or I could use a submarine swap. Those are all the different ways we could, we could, uh, increase the outbound liquidity, but they all require, uh, on-chain confirmation. So if I forgot to do that and I don't have some automated server that is always online and available if I'm using a mobile wallet where the wallet software uh, is going to exit periodically and not have background threads running all the time, I very well may end up in a situation where when I'm going to pay for my coffee, I don't have the liquidity and uh, you don't really want to have to wait for an on-chain confirmation when you're in the checkout line ready to buy your coffee. Uh, and it's also not really uh, – I don't think it's an acceptable UX to ask uh, Bitcoiners to have to constantly be keeping track of this kind of liquidity management. It's, it's annoying, and most people simply aren't going to do it unless you're you know, ideologically committed Bitcoiner that you're willing to kind of go through this. Most people are just going to use their credit card or something else if they have to uh, – constantly manually like move the liquidity around so that's what we're trying to solve is to make it so that when i go to buy that cup of coffee even if i don't have sufficient outbound liquidity i can get that liquidity 
instantly on demand without waiting for an on-chain transaction. Um, and I only pay for the liquidity when I actually need it. And I only get it when it's actually needed. And it could even happen right when I go to make the payment, the liquidity could swap in um, transparently. Uh, and the final thing to add is we can also do this in reverse. So let's say I want to uh, receive a payment and I don't have sufficient inbound liquidity. Um, that again, uh, would require an on-chain transaction to to uh, to um, increase my uh, inbound liquidity. Uh, it's kind of annoying to have to like block a payment or wait where a payment can't go through until an on-chain transaction occurs. Again, like a you know a downgrade to the Venmo experience or or the fiat experience in that sense. Um, and so it would be better where when I actually need the inbound liquidity. I can swap it in instantly to complete the payment. And if we're in a world of async payments, uh, the LSP has some warning that uh, a, a payment is pending. And when the mobile wallet wakes up, will need to be received. So the LSP can prepare this swap in potentium liquidity to be ready to rock um, when the wallet wakes up and needs to receive the payment. Now, we, we cover a lot of um, news around uh, zero comp channels. So, you know, maybe you can speak a bit to why that is not a good idea and, and the trust minimization there. If, if I'm at the coffee shop, I just do a zero comp channel, right? As long as, uh, as long as the risk of double spending is acceptable to the participants, um, you know, you, you can take that risk, but it's uh, it, it, it kind of undermines the trustless aspect of Hello? systems. Z-Man, do you want to uh, jump in here? Yeah, I want to interrupt here because uh, I would like to point out that these sorts of things are going to lead to hidden charges or rather to price increases that are reported at the, you know, that are not directly reported to the consumer. It's similar to how a credit card actually works. Like a credit card works by, you know, doing a zero confirmation. Like it's not even confirmed that you have the money to pay for this thing that you're buying with a credit card. So it's not confirmed. This is as opposed to having a debit card, but whether it's confirmed that you actually have this money. So a zero confirmation works like a credit card and the issue here is that credit card companies will have, in fact, a surcharge. Like if I am a merchant and I want to receive credit card payments, I have to pay a subscription fee to a credit card company. And in order to offset that, I need to increase my prices. And this is something that is not easily you know, noticed by the end consumer. They say, oh, hey, credit card, instant payments. Wow, I don't even have to pay anything except you know, when the credit card bill is due, right? But the effect here is that there is always a credit card surcharge. And there are even countries where you know, if a store says, oh, we can give you this uh, same item if you pay by cash at a cheaper price where that is made illegal. There are countries where that is illegal. 
And of course, it's those credit card companies who push for those kinds of laws. So I want you to consider that zero confirmation is basically credit cards. Okay, so that's my spiel. Yeah, I, I think that analogy makes sense. That that due to the risk involved, like in the credit card example, that there is uh, that that risk isn't isn't free. That it, that that there is some mitigation of that risk from the credit card company. And similarly, with zero conf, there, there is a risk, and that would need to be mitigated in in some way as as well. Um, I, I brought up the zero conf thing more of a, as a uh, tongue in cheek, but I, I do think some people. Um, would think about that as a potential, um, but I appreciate you guys breaking down why that maybe isn't a, a free thing. Go ahead, Merch. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, so we've talked a little bit about how the swap-in potentium has um, a better UX for the situation in which we do not have sufficient lightning liquidity, but do want to either receive or make a payment. Uh, maybe we could jump in a little bit in how your proposal works and who has the funds before, uh, how the funds get locked up to remove the double spend risk and... Um, Yes. Let's, let's jump into the details a bit. Okay. Uh, Jesse, will you take this or? Sure. Yeah. Um, feel free to, to uh, jump in at any time, but I'll, I'll take a first stab at it. So the way it works is that whenever the wallet, basically we're going to, we're going to create these L1 addresses, on-chain addresses um, that are have this, the output structure will be um, the script structure will be that it's a uh, a two of two. So we're we're going to create a taproot music two of two in the key spend path, and we're also going to put the two of two condition um, in the tap script as well. And there's an interesting reason why we're kind of hedging our our bets by having two ways of signing for the two of two, both by the music or the the script path and we're intending the script path to be used at least initially the important thing is that it's locked by a two of two between the um let's say alice who has the wallet and bob who is the lsp or let's say uh larry who's the lsp so um uh it also there's also a time lock um, in the script where let's after some period uh, goes by, let's say two weeks, um, Alice, the wallet owner, can spend unilaterally without the LSP. And but until then, both uh, Alice and Larry both have to sign um, to uh, to spend uh, from this output. So uh, and and uh, as Z-Man points out in the mailing list post, this is actually one of the kind of early designs for a payment channel, uh, a unidirectional payment channel. So what we're going to do here is now we're going to create commitment transactions, or let's say we're thinking really state mainly state transactions, state transactions, yeah, state state transactions that um, spend from this what is sort of equivalent to the funding transaction, this, this, uh, this two of two now. Uh, and so, uh, now note, uh, every time Alice receives Bitcoin, it's going into this channel, um, 
automatically uh, upon receipt because each address already embeds this two of two requirement with the time lock. So as soon as she, every payment she's receiving or every payment she wants to be subject to this swap in potentium would uh, directly be uh, bound in, in this uh, construction um, as soon as it's received. So to, to clarify, Alice basically chooses to um, add an additional uh, encumberment to payments to herself. And instead of receiving money directly, she chooses to have it locked up to the condition either that she needs also Larry's sign off on any payments to herself before she can spend them or to wait for uh, what in the example it was 6,000 confirmations, so about six weeks, and uh, to be able to spend it unilaterally. That's right, yeah. And so if, uh, if Alice wants to make an on-chain payment um, and spend from this uh, output, she simply asks the LSP to co-sign. And the LSP shouldn't uh, if the LSP isn't acting maliciously, the LSP should not refuse. As long as a swap uh, uh, hasn't occurred, uh, the LSP shouldn't refuse to um, to co-sign just any arbitrary on-chain transaction that Alice wants, because it's Alice's coins. So uh, if Alice can cooperatively request, hey, LSP, Larry, please co-sign. I'm just going to spend this on-chain. Alternatively, um, if Alice wants a swap, uh, she can create a transaction that spends from this uh, output uh, to an HTLC, um, where she'll have she'll create some hash pre-image um, and spend this spend from the two of two to uh, be redeemed by the the hash and and. Uh, and also, I think we'll need to um, require Larry's key as well. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, Z-Man, please. Okay. So uh, Alice will hand over the signature and the transaction to Larry. And Larry is, well, Larry can now sign it and broadcast it if that's what Larry wants. Or Larry can uh, keep it off-chain and then when it sends the funds to Alice, it can now ask Alice for a signature for a different transaction, which is instead of going to an HLC, it goes directly to Larry, to a f address that Larry chooses. Okay, So there, if Alice then refuses at this point, Larry can still take this HLC-based transaction and then spend the actual HLC uh, via the hash lock branch because it already should have known the hash from Alice via the on lightning payment uh, on lightning payment that will re uh, re fund or give uh, additional funds to Alice's channel with Larry and it will be able to use the HLC branch but of course we can remove this one additional transaction by having Alice coordinate this time for the second state. So let me try if I understood that correctly. Um, 
since Alice receives the money to this shared ownership between Larry and herself, where it's held for a few weeks if uh, Larry chooses to become uncooperative, uh, they can essentially treat that as a semi-offline lightning channel. And if a lightning payment uh, arrives to Larry that is intended for Alice, they can have an on-chain HTLC to make the last hop to Alice, or they can, um, if Alice tries to make a payment out of uh, this um, shared funds uh, into a lightning payment, can directly pay an HTLC to Larry. And um, Larry can more confidently participate in these schemes because the funds are already held in shared custody between Larry and uh, the user, Alice, so that uh, there's at least a few weeks these funds are held and uh, that makes it uh, easy to immediately create either a lightning channel or a lightning payment on chain. Is that about right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, yeah. If, if you want, I can discuss about uh, a short amount about the history of payment channels. Go for it. Okay. So, uh, payment channels were invented by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. So, uh, the initial plan for payment channels was based on N sequence. So, long, long ago, back in Bitcoin Alpha 1.0 for Windows, you know, the very first version that Satoshi actually released, uh, way back, N sequence was part of our uh, transaction uh, transaction filtering inputs. Of... Yeah, each yes. each input has an end sequence field. And... Yes, yes. Yeah, this end on. sequence was used for during uh, mempool filtering. Like, for example, I I get a transaction and it has a it spends this particular input and it has a higher end sequence it will replace it in my mempool. That was the original rule for n-sequence. That's why it was n-sequence. That's the reason why the field is named that way. So it's supposed to be a sequence number that is uh, continuously incrementing, right? So the original plan would be like, okay, I would have funds in my address, and then I want to give pay, give, to pay you, right? So if I, I pay you, I create a transaction and I put a sequence zero, the lowest possible sequence. Then I broadcast it to the mempools of all the, to the mempool network, uh, to the full nodes. And then later, if I say, oh, I want to pay you more because I want to buy another item, I would increment this end sequence number and then I would rebroadcast this, okay? So that was the original design for end sequence. And that is why it is called end sequence because it's supposed to be a sequence of transactions that you are doing, that you are, you know, sending out to the gossip network before, you know, it confirms, before a block can confirm because, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto was aware that block confirmation had to be slow so that it would propagate globally. But he also knew that, you know, block the transactions would need to be fast also so that you can actually buy coffee and would not wait 10 minutes for the payments, right? 
So that was the original plan. Now, of course, this is substantially broken because, you know, mempool policy is not consensus. Like, if I change my mempool policy, then I can still maintain consensus. I can still keep track with consensus in the sense that these are the confirmed blocks, and I will still agree that those confirmed blocks are confirmed. But now I can change the way that, you know, transactions are propagated on the network. Like, for example, I give you an N a transaction with a high end sequence number, and then I go talk to my best friend, Jihan Wu, and have him combine N sequence zero. And because this is not part of consensus, this is only part of, you know, transaction uh, policy, okay, relay policy, then it's not... Yeah, Something so there was no mechanism minor. to enforce the, the sequence to actually take precedence. And yes. a miner can still pick any transaction they saw that is confirmable. And since, yeah, well, they picked the transaction, there was no mechanism to actually, um, or even if they just naturally found a block that happened to include the previous version of the transaction, that's still a valid block. And these two, two ways of how they picked the block are fundamentally indistinguishable, whether they haven't seen the new version or whether they choose chose to use the old version looks the same to every other part. Participant. Another issue with this was that it essentially gave everyone a license to DOS the network by just using all three billion sequences for each input on their transactions in a matter of seconds. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's an issue. So the next iteration of payment channels would be uh, you now have n lock time based and, and it's now unidirectional. So what you do is you start with a transact you start with an address that is a two of two between you and a counterparty, like the coffee shop that you are buying from. Okay? So you prepare this beforehand and then you create a transaction that has an end lock time in the future and spends that and then you receive it back to yourself. Okay. So this is another design for uh, payment channels, which predated Lightning, and this is, I believe, called Spillman-style channels. Like yeah, I think uh, that was uh, implemented by Blue Matt when he was working for my current uh, at an internship in 2013 or so. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so basically, what happens is that you spend this two of two. And then there's a transaction that is kept off chain that refunds the entire amount back to the one who opened this channel. Now, uh, in order to spend to somebody else, I now hand over transactions which change how the funds are divided. So some of it now goes to the other person in the channel. So this channel is still two participant. It's still a channel. And the other person now gets more funds, and this transaction is not time-locked. It can be sent right now, okay? So by sending it right now, uh, I can close the channel, and then, you know, the funds will now be correctly divided between the receiver side and the sender side of this channel. 
So this is a unidirectional channel. However, the receiver side can, instead of immediately, you know, broadcasting this to the relay network, it can just keep it. And then later, if the sender says, oh, I want to buy another coffee, then they create another transaction that now gives more funds to the receiver. So now this, the fact that, or, or rather the idea that uh, prevents cheating here is that the receiver has a incentive to earn more money. So it's not going to immediately close the channel and you know, broadcast this the first transaction and then just close the channel. It's going to wait around until you know maybe you'll pay it again, and then when you pay it again, you give it a larger amount out of this channel. And the only time that they really need to actually you know confirm this channel or confirm the closure of the channel is when the timeline or the timeout is about to expire. Okay. So this is now a unidirectional channel. Okay. I think one little thing is missing here still. Um, so the receiver, uh, since it's a two of two multisig that the funds are in, the receiver is the only one that can uh, close the channel because the sender gives the receiver a half-signed transaction. So the receiver chooses which of the channel states to use to close the channel before the time lock expires that the refund was locked to. So um, that way the the receiver has is the only one that can close and the sender can actually not use one of the earlier states that he gave to the receiver um and yeah i looked it up it's uh, june 2013 that matt announced that to the mailing list okay so that's another style the problem here is that it is vulnerable to transaction malleability so before segwit Okay, so before SegWit, signatures were part of transaction IDs. And the problem here is that if you take a signature and you flip the sign of, the, of one of its numbers, so a signature is really composed of two special magic numbers, you flip the sign of one number and it will still be a valid signature. But transaction ID is a hash. And if the transaction ID is a hash, then changing even just one bit it's going to completely change the transaction ID. So that is the problem of the transaction malleability. So remember, to start the transaction, first, the two participants, the sender and the receiver, have to sign, have to pre-sign the refund transaction that has an analog time in the future and which re refunds the channel funds back to the sender for at full. Now, they have to do this before the sender puts funds in the channel. But the problem is, if the sender puts funds in the channel, so they sign a transaction to create the channel, the receiver can now change the signature, change one bit of the signature in order to change the sign of the component of the signature. And this now completely changes the transaction ID. But it is still a valid transaction. The problem is that the transaction that refunds to the sender points to a specific transaction ID, and you are able to change this transaction ID. That is the transaction malleability problem. Okay? Okay, so that's a transaction malleability problem, and that is why this kind of you know channel was not safe. 
So what we did was we created the op check light check lock time verify opcode. That is one of the justifications for why this opcode was created. Okay, so instead of sending to a plain two of two, you now create a more complex script where one branch is two of two and the other branch is the sender and check lock time verify. And because there is an alternate branch in this address, there is no need to create a refund transaction that returns the funds to the sender. Okay? Yeah, great. Okay, so that is one way to, you know, work around the transaction malleability problem. Now, if you pay attention in Lightning, when we open a channel, the first thing we do is to create the initial commitment transaction. And this initial commitment transaction returns the funds of the channel to the funder of the channel. That's the initial commitment transaction. And it's exactly the same as what is used in this previous channel, the uh, previous channel mechanism. You need to have a transaction that refunds this, uh, the channel funds back to the funder of the channel, okay? Yep, you need right to on. get that signed and you need to ensure that transaction malleability is fixed. That is why Lightning needed a transaction malleability fix in order to actually be implementable safely. Okay, now, but the advantage of the check like time verify opcode is that you don't need this pre-signed transaction. It's already there in the script. There is no need to do this. Uh, you know, there's no need for this extra dance to open a to open a channel. Like, okay, I have an address, and this address encodes the script two of two or the funder after some time. I have check lock time verify, or in our case, check sequence verify, because we've now changed n sequence to be a relative lock time field and. The advantage here is that you don't need to do this dance where both of you sign this initial transaction that refunds the channel back to the original funder of the channel. It's already encoded in the address itself. So we are now able to use this technique to open a channel effectively. What is a channel, but it's not lightning because it doesn't use the lightning protocol, but it's a channel nevertheless. And it's openable by simply sending to an address. There is no complex, you know, machinery like in Lightning where you have to both sign this initial commitment transaction and then you send the funds to this address. Yeah, so and that's actually the magic. very similar to, to what you and Jesse are proposing with the, the mailing list post here, right? Yes. This is basically a revival of an, this old idea. Right. So it's 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 a revival of this old idea kind of combined with the submarine swap idea. Um, yes. And uh, maybe maybe it take maybe it'd be useful to take a couple minutes just to describe that the swapping process. Um, so with the submarine swap, the way it works is you make a transaction on chain that pays out to some hash pre-image and let's say you're swapping with an LSP and the and the LSP's key 
And then the LSP offers an HTLC in the Lightning channel tied to the same hash. And so at that point, we can we have the two scenarios. We have a cooperative scenario where um, Alice, who has the wallet, who initiated the swap, reveals that she knows the pre-image uh, to the LSP. Um, and then uh, the LSP is able to take the funds on chain and they can update the the channel state to just drop the HTLC and replace it with like a, a standard um, output. Or if for whatever reason, um, uh, Alice uh, um, go, closes the channel and takes the HTLC on chain to spend the HTLC, she has to reveal the pre-image and then the LSP would learn the pre-image and be able to take the funds on chain. So we've we've swapped on-chain funds for off-chain funds. Uh, Alice paid the LSP X amount of Bitcoin on-chain, and then the LSP paid Alice the same amount of Bitcoin off-chain. But to do this uh, safely, we need to wait for the on-chain transaction to confirm. The LSP needs to wait before offering the HTLC in the channel. Otherwise, Alice could double spend the LSP and take the funds in the channel, but then also take the funds on chain. So by adding this Spillman style channel to the construction, we've removed Alice's ability to double spend because to spend from the UTXO that's offering the HTLC on chain, it requires both Larry's signature and Alice's signature until the time lock expires. And so therefore, the LSP does not have any risk of double spending by Alice. As soon as that HTLC is offered on chain, even if it's not confirmed or broadcast, it's just saved locally the signed transaction by the LSP. The LSP is safe to offer the HTLC in the channel because Alice can't double spend because she needs the LSP's key to do so. Jesse uh, and Z-Man, this, uh, you mentioned the uh, benefit of the LSP not having to worry about double spends in the context of protecting the LSP. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on if people were to use this technique, do you see LSPs also providing what Green Address used to sort of provide, which is a promise and reputation that they won't sign other double spends so that um, transactions, uh, on-chain transactions coming out of this output, uh, they would say we, we won't sign a double spend and they're thereby decreasing the, the risk to people outside of that LSP that a double spend would occur out of there. You'd be replacing a miner with, you know, with that service. And if a miner can be bribed to double spend it, then that can be bribed to be double spend it also. Yes, there's, a, there's obviously no, no guarantees, and it would be the, the reputation of the LSP that would be at stake there, obviously. Um, yeah, because when you think about it, like you can always you know, get a good reputation and then sell out at the last minute with your golden parachute. Of course. Yeah, like you can argue that that's what happened with you know, SBF or stuff like that. But the goal for the design is to mitigate. Not required. Yeah, to not reduce require the trust. Yeah. No, no, exactly. no, no. Yeah, not required trust. The only trust here is that uh, the 
Alice trusts that Larry will not go offline and refuse to sign when Alice needs to spend funds right now. So it's basically it's either but but at the end of the time lock, time lock, Alice will now get unilateral control of the funds. So it's only enforced holding. And you know, if you are a wallet and you're dependent on an LSP, then this LSP can always refuse to forward any of your payments. Like you, you're online and you connect to the LSP and you say, "Hey, I want to sign this HLC," and then you know this the LSEP gives you bullshit reasons like, "Oh no, the channels you're selecting to that route are you know all jammed up," and they can completely refuse service to you. So you're already trusting that an LSP will. Hello. Uh, and you're already trusting that the LSP will not, you know, will in fact forward your payments, will help you to pay. Okay. So this is not a worsening of this scenario. Like if the LSP disappears, then you have all your funds are in the channel with the LSP, then you still have to wait out the, the unilateral close for that channel. So well, similarly, if they're here, you have to wait out the unilateral part or the unilateral branch of this swap in potential. Right, but the, the long-term outcome here still is that the funds actually go to the recipients. So where we previously had uh, ideas for how we do async payments, where the lightning service provider actually becomes a custodian for the funds uh, before they are given to the recipient, we now have a construction where the funds are actually held in a um, commitment that uh, enables the final recipient to take the funds unilaterally in the end, which is actually a strict improvement. And the only thing I'd add also is that the these time locks are going to roll off as Alice receives uh, generates new addresses. So each new receive address she creates has the, there's a new uh, time lock that gets triggered mm. when the, when that I address thought we're going receives. to use relative relative time locks. Right, but those time locks would not be the same across addresses. Like, let's say Alice generates an address. Uh, no, they would. The relative time lock would be the same, but the absolute time lock would be different based on when it got sent to. Right, but for a brand, a fresh address, right? Mm -hmm. Like she's she's generating. If if I generate an address today uh, and get paid mm -hmm. at that address, the time lock will start. Ah, yes. The, the absolute time lock will start, but the the script itself, the address itself, would contain only a relative time lock, right. and it won't. It so won't. You know, you don't need to change the the script itself. Like it's possible to do address reuse. This is safe for address reuse. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So for for a given address, there's a there's a specific uh, time lock. In other words. These no, no, for, I think you mean for specific, a specific UTXO, not for a specific yes, address, yes. and that's the confusion here. But if we, uh, uh, my point is that the entire balance at any given time is not going to be locked up. There will be some UTXOs for which the time lock has expired, and there will be some UTXOs for which it has not. Yeah, and and so when we talk about uh, Alice's. 
um, inability to spend, um, it won't. Uh, typically, this is going to apply to the um, her more recent funds, but there will be expired uh, UTXOs. Uh, that she will potentially have available to spend with, even if the LSP will cooperate, um, presumably depending on her wallet activity and, and its history, she'll probably have some UTXOs available that aren't encumbered because the yes. lock has expired. Yeah, I would I would like to try to rephrase this. Um, so, since the addresses that Alice now creates in con uh, in uh, collaboration with her LSP, each contain this relative time lock, as in the funds that are received to these addresses have to age for a certain number of confirmations before she can unilaterally spend them. If she continues to use that style for all of her addresses, eventually some of her funds will always be available to be regularly spent from her wallet, while any new funds have this swap in potentium attached to them while they are not still waiting to be con uh, to to be aged appropriately, mature enough to be spent by her by herself. Yes, that's correct. And so, as, as a user, I uh, or as an Alice um, in this example, I am giving up the risk of being force hodled um and and not being able to use my bitcoins for the reward of having these additional uh lightning related optionality that i get with those utxos no that's correct there's a small other downside as far as i understand uh which is while um when Alice and Bob cooperate. Sorry, Alice and Larry cooperate to spend the funds. They could use music in the long term to create a output that is essentially uh, uh, looks no different than single sig. If Alice needs to unilaterally spend them, she has to use the text sequence variant uh, branch, and that requires her to reveal that it was present and reveal the uh, script. So um, in the case that she needs to fall back to a unilateral spend, she will actually A, have a larger transaction input and B, um, reveal that this was going on. But as long as Larry is cooperative and uh, remains there, Larry should always co-sign anything that Alice wants to sign. So this is strictly just a fallback scenario. That's, that's correct. With the caveat that we also are contemplating potentially not using the music key. So uh, remember at the beginning, I also described that we're embedding the two of two in the tap script as well. And so if the, so there's a trade-off that is uh, that the, that Alice can decide or the LSP can decide if they want to take, which is um, if you, if they use the script path instead of the key spend path, they don't need to um, go through the interactive music uh, nonce protocol, and uh, maybe. Uh, and then the other thing is they can 
point to frost keys. So if, let's say, Alice wants to, instead of just having her side of the two of two sign with a single key, if she actually wants that to require a two of three uh, consensus uh, in her wallet system to sign, uh, by embedding her key in the tap script, which points to a, uh, a taproot key, that taproot key could secretly be actually a frost key that was generated with multiple parties and requires multiple parties to sign with. And the reason that we can't, eventually we're hoping to be able to do that directly in the key spend path, but to do that requires nesting, where we would have to take a music two, uh, a music two of two, and have one or both of those component keys in the music itself be a frost key. So we're nesting frost keys inside of music. And there's out, some outstanding um, open research questions in terms of the right way to do that and the security properties. So as a stopgap, we have this alternative where we can use the script path and get embed our frost keys without nesting. That's very cool. Yeah. So either way, you will always have the ability to have a um, threshold signature scheme as part of your spending path uh, in the form of Alice. And now that makes all sense to me because I was wondering how that fit into the ecosystem of block. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how much you've, I, I guess you've blocked about these uh, things already on uh, the block blog, right? Or... Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about how um, we're going to have like a two of three um, key management set up for the wallet, and so you know that that's that's the kind of security model we want um, for our system is to not have single points of failure to require multiple keys, um, and in general, I think you know this is a great way to harden any wallet setup is to require a threshold of keys to sign rather than just a single key, especially when you're talking about a phone where a mobile device can be compromised and so on. So if you have some offline signer or dedicated hardware uh, wallet signer that can participate, um, that really improves the security posture of the wallet. Yeah, totally. It also sounds like um, this block wallet that you're talking about really depends on Taproot getting a little more adoption. And uh, maybe we should all remind everyone that works on software wallets that they really, really should be able to send to Taproot addresses by now. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> All right. I, th I think we've gotten pretty deep on the whole micro channel, mi micropayment channel topic and also your new um, proposal on how we can make this swap in potentium. Uh, I think that's really cool and a great idea. We do have two small, smallish news items left on our, or three actually, on our newsletter, and we're almost on the hour. Uh, so I think we're we're gonna wrap up the uh, lightning swap in potentium topic, unless you have something else to add. And also a reminder for everyone that's on our spaces here: if you have questions or comments, please put in a speaker request so we can uh, later give you a speaker if you want to talk. 
One last thing that that I'd like to get feedback on is uh, Jesse and Z-Man, how, how has this proposal been received by the community, both on the mailing list or any um, conversations you've had outside of that, that are, are people largely supportive of this? Are there criticisms that um, would prevent this coming to fruition, et cetera? Well, I, I personally didn't quite like it at first, but, you know, I like it now. Um, I like it too. <laughs> I think the the one pushback we saw on the mailing list um, was uh, uh, Lalu had talked about how the um, the loop protocol allows for um, something very similar. Um, it was recent. I think it was recently updated. I wasn't quite aware that it. Uh, there's a construction that allows for a cooperative on-chain spend with Loop. Um, it's it's still- not actually. It's just a plain HTLC. That's why it's not safe for address reuse. Right. Right. And so it's, it's yeah. So it's just a plain HTLC address. And what's happening is that Loop pays attention to every block that can confirm and checks for addresses that it knows are HLCs. And then when it sees the, that HLC address, it sends it out to whoever asked for it. But because it, this address commits to a specific hash, once the swap is done, then the Lightning Loop server now knows the pre-image. And if somebody sends to the same address again, then Lightning Loop can get this unilaterally without cooperation of the customer. Yeah, so I think there was some initial confusion on the mailing list about what precisely are the differences between these systems. Um, and uh, But I think that's now been clarified, and I haven't seen any other pushback, and we've definitely seen some positive feedback, some excitement about this. It's something that we can implement today. There's no consensus changes or anything like that required. Um, we're definitely looking to get any feedback uh, we can, if anybody uh, has any concerns or, or thinks it's cool and exciting, please let us know. We're, we're looking for uh, any and all feedback. Well, thank you both for, for joining us. Um, you're welcome to stay on the spaces as we wrap up these additional items from the newsletter, um, or if you have other things to do, you're welcome to, to drop off. But thank you for walking us through this. It's really valuable to hear from uh, researchers and proposals of these ideas to actually discuss it with them. And and you guys have been very generous with your time for the last hour. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. Uh, This is great and uh, really happy to have the opportunity to talk about this new idea. Yeah. And and it was, we were all a bit lucky this week because there, there weren't too many other items from the newsletter. So we were able to really uh, dig in on this one. Merch, anything else before we move on? No, I think we've we've got it all covered. All right, great. Uh, back to the newsletter, 233. We're in the releases and release candidates section. Um, BDK 026.0 was released. Actually, we, um, at the time of the spaces last week, we had seen that this was released, and we did discussed that a bit last week um, about the Electrum server compatibility and some dependency bumps there. 
Um, Merch, I don't know if you have anything to add on, on top of what we discussed last week. Yeah, I actually looked at the release notes a little bit this morning, and it looks like it's mostly housekeeping stuff. So uh, there was, for example, with the Electrum compatibility, the issue that if you uh, called the SafetyX function, uh, BDK had assumed that they would always be in the same order that they had been requested, but that was actually not the case. So that was just a fix to to, uh, be able to deal with the response coming in any order and um, the other things like the descriptive templates and uh, the um, code samples from the readme uh, are also just fix me's so um, yeah it, mostly like smaller things and and housekeeping except for maybe the transaction detail ordering and and uh, some configuration about using SSL with the electron community The second release that we highlighted this week was to HWI. There's a 2.2.0 release candidate. Um, So obviously, if you're using HWI in any of your software, you probably want to test that. I went to jump in um, to the release notes. I I couldn't actually find a a summary of the release notes here. I I think, Merch, you were potentially going to ping... HL. Yes, yes. I, I have chatted with the author of this uh, package, and uh, since it's only a release candidate, the release notes have not been written yet. Uh, they're pending, and uh, they will be part of the release. So I guess um, if you are looking to test this release candidate, you might want to take a look at the commits that were added to the release in order to get an impression of what, what's been changed. Excellent. And uh, moving on to code changes, we just have one this week, and it's Eclair 2455, implementing support for TLV. Merch, what's TLV and what's Eclair doing here? Uh, So a long time ago, the protocol for um, multi-hop payments or generally communication on the Lightning Network was changed that the um, format was no longer fixed length, but actually had this type length value uh, optional fields, where basically to each message, you could attach more information by declaring just what is it that I'm sending you, what is the length of it, and what's the value. And um, here, uh, Eclair implements the uh, an additional field, an additional type length value stream for the failure messages. So if a routing attempt did not succeed, a uh, node that, say, didn't have enough uh, funds to forward uh, can now attach a message back to the sender uh, in the form of a TLV. And this is in conjunction with the recent, with what we recently discussed. So we we had um, used on I think, and discussed the fat error scheme, and how uh, there's a gap in assigning the error 
or attributing errors to to causes and uh, nodes along the route. And um, with these TLV fields, we will be able to propagate messages back to the sender so that they know why something failed and how they could uh, better try to to find a path through the Lightning Network for future attempts. Uh, so this is essentially Eclair already implementing the recently introduced change to Bolt 4 uh, that proposed to add this, this freeform field to the failure messages. And if you're curious a, a bit more about what Yoast was proposing, there's a, its newsletter 224 that we cover um, LN routing failure attribution. So you can dig into that a bit. That was our last item on the newsletter for this week. I don't see any requests for speaker access or questions. So Merch, anything else you'd like to add or announce before we wrap up? Yeah, uh, it's 20, 23 this year already. So uh, in case other people also didn't notice. Yeah, no, I, I don't have any announcements. And uh, Merch, I, I know you already reminded folks um, but I saw, I think it was you or um, the When Taproot Twitter account that it really can only be a couple line change to uh, support uh, Taproot. So in encourage your wallets and providers to, to support this so that we can get some of these features like we're talking about here today with Jesse and Z-Man. Oh, yeah. I actually, I have a tiny little thing. I was looking at the statistics of pay-to-taproot outputs on transactionfee.info, and uh, I, I've been watching how the curve of outputs has been increasingly accelerating, and we're, we're at like about 10,000 pay-to-taproot outputs per day now. So that's still tiny. It's like uh, a little more than a percent of all outputs created per day. But... Um, it's it's pretty cool to see the the curve move up. Um, oh, yeah, I, I I posted that recently on Twitter. Some so anyway, if you want to help increase that curve's um, acceleration, then you should probably also start using pay to tap outputs. <laughs> was there a conclusion on on where that additional adoption was coming from? No, I, I, I don't think that it's just one person. I mean, 24.0 got released, so some people that uh, always try to lag behind one version to give some time to for fixes to appear for anything that, that's still found might have started using 23.0 now. or like uh, So if you create a new wallet with Bitcoin Core now, the standard will have support for Taproot already. Um, there is a few other wallets that have been working on, on improving that. Uh, LND recently made all of their uh, payouts taproot, so people rolling out the latest uh, LND versions will start receiving pay to taproot outputs. Uh, and then Kraken recently announced that they now support sending to Bash32M. Uh, somebody mentioned that they, for them, that was now the point that they could start using pay to taproot because I assume they have some sort of business relationship with Kraken, and now they can uh, withdraw to Pay2Taproot. So I, I think it's just slowly getting easier to use Pay2Taproot, and that's why we're seeing more people trying to trying it out and using it. Excellent. Well, 
Thank you, everybody, for listening today. Thank you, Jesse and Z-Man, for joining and explaining your research. And thanks to my co-host, Merch, as always. And we'll see you all next week when we cover Newsletter 234. Thanks, Mike. See ya. Thanks. Cheers.